you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Matthew chapter 1. So get the lights on now so I can, it's harder for me to tell who's glowing with their phone, right? Um, or that's just you following along on the app with the notes. But um, anyways, we, we are continuing. This is the second week of our series in Advent. Um, just looking at the traditional themes of Advent, hope, joy, love, and peace. Just understanding what those are in relation to as we see and celebrate Christ's birth. So last week we began just considering the fact that we have a hope in our redemption, that when we look at Christ's birth, we have a hope in the redemption of our our souls and our bodies because of the sin that we have all been born with. And then we we looked at the fact that, that that redemption is necessary that, that it's a total, complete redemption, and also that it's available through Christ. And so as we began to look at Advent, we saw the fact that we need help, that, that we need someone to help us, and that person was Christ who was born. And then today we, we take a, a step further down that, that path of Advent as we look at the love of our Redeemer. And so when we look at Christ, we not only see that we have a hope in our redemption because of his birth, but we also have on display or personified the love of God in our Redeemer. And so if you will follow along, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. And then um, we'll continue to look at this love of God on display in Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now when the birth of Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. If you will pray as we ask the Spirit to guide us through our today. Father God, I just pray that, that this season of Christmas, God, that brings so many opportunities of distraction, I pray that our hearts would be captive by your truth. God, a a truth that stands forever. God, just that that as our lives continue, that we would be a beacon of hope to a world that offers none, all because of the birth of your son so long ago. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so as you look at that story, um, I want you to, to, to try to look at it in a new perspective. Because what I've found, and this might be 
It might just be unique to me, but I don't think it is, that, that when I've heard a story over and over again, I approach it kind of the same way as I always have. That, that when I've been at this point to where I've looked at this birth narrative so many years, and we've looked at the Christmas season, that it's hard sometimes then to look at it in a different view. But, but today I want you to, to look at it and try to look at it differently as we pull the aspects out of this story that you've heard before, really focusing in on the angel's message to Joseph and how that shows the love of God. But to do that, we have to understand and we have to ask ourselves, how do we show love? And, and, and think about the relationships that you have in, in whom those people you would say that you love. How do you show your love for other people? Is it, is it through your actions? You show your love by what you do for them, how you provide for them, what you give them, or is it just simply more of a loving aspect for your heart in what you say? That that verbally, audibly, your love is displayed more often, and maybe it's just a, a good of both, which is what we should find in our lives. And then ask yourself then, how do you know when someone loves you? What do you look for in someone else in a relationship to see that they actually love you? Not in just some random physical way, but a true love, a devoted love that we understand is captivating. How do you actually know when someone loves you? And then you have to go a step further and, and then ask ourselves that if we can love someone and we know how we love other people and we can understand when other people love us, how are we actually able to learn? Or it's a love. Is it, is it something that we have just naturally? We just love people naturally? Or is it something that we've learned, that we see other people? Maybe we have um, older people in our lives that have just been loving towards one another, have always walked in love, and so we actually learn by mirroring what they do. But if we actually think about it, that we learn to love and we see love when we look at Jesus Christ. That, that when we look at his birth on this season, we realize that Christ is the visualization of what John says in 1 John 4, that we love because he first loved us, right? That we see that in Christ, love is visualized, that there's love personified when we see that Christ is born. And that's why we look at this understanding of love when we look at Christ's birth, the magnificent the magnificence of his birth displays the love that he has for us, especially when we look forward into the end of his life and then how he lived his life up until his sacrificial death for us. And the way we understand this first, that he is our redeemer, or that the love of our redeemer is visible in Christ as we first look at his position. We look at the, the position of our Redeemer, position meaning his title. Who is he? What has he done? That Jesus is our Redeemer, that there's no one else that can redeem us. So if we have a hope in redemption, that hope is only satisfied in Christ as he displays the love of God in him as he is a Redeemer. And that's what he says in John 14, right? That he's the way, the truth, and the life. You only come to Father through him. That he is himself the only Redeemer. And when we look at the aspects of what we just heard, we see this evident. Look at verse 20 again. But as he considered these things, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, said, Joseph, son of David. 
So we have Joseph being a righteous man, a just man, is saying that, and by the way, just a little context here, in, in, in this culture, betrothal was pretty much the same as marriage. It was, it was pretty much the same as marriage, it was just a waiting period. And so they were considered married already. And so when Mary then became pregnant, that would have been a sign of adultery. And so Joseph is a just man, a righteous man, so he's going to not shame her, divorce her quietly, and then the Lord the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, which we see in this that he's already setting up as the angel's about to say who is going to be born of Mary, that he already sets up who Jesus is by saying Joseph, son of David. And so then we can track his earthly lineage by Joseph down to King David to answer all of those prophecies that he would come from that line. And he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for which is conceived in hers from the Holy Spirit. And so by Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit, this sets him up to the reality of what he is about to do, being our Redeemer, that only Jesus can have this position because only Jesus was conceived by this is, we, we get this language when we look at John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he is the only one of his kind. That Christ alone is our Redeemer. That's his position. That's his title alone. And no one else can claim that because no one else was conceived of the Spirit in this way to redeem us from our sins. That he is the only begotten Son of God. That he is one of a kind. He is the only one in this position. He's uniquely qualified to display the love of God through the redemption of our sin and our bodies because he was without sin from birth, because he was not conceived of man, and that he is fully God and fully man. And so when we look at Christ, we see that he's uniquely qualified for the position that he alone can have. And then when we look further into what the angel says, if we go to verse 21, we kind of see this even clearer when he tells us his name. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. If we just stop there for a second, we just look at his name. Just look at Jesus' name and see the title and position that he has just in his name, Jesus. That's the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew name for Jesus is Joshua which means what? Jehovah is salvation, that God is salvation. And so Jesus' name, Jesus the Greek, Joshua Hebrew, sets him apart, and it points him to the fact that salvation is in him. That's what his name means, that God is salvation. But at this point, if we stop here, we don't really understand why he's uniquely qualified, because there were other people. There were clearly other people that would have had that name. It wasn't, it's, so it's all about his name, but it's not just his name. Does that make sense? Like, there's other people that would have this name, so we have to go further. Then it's the same thing that we can understand in our world, that you might know someone that has the same name, right? And it's kind of weird. I have a, a friend that I grew up my, my entire life with. Um, uh, as long as I can have memories, I remember him, right? We went through kindergarten all the way through high school. We still talk every now and then. But what's interesting is now, about 10 years ago, I was talking to him, we were texting, and he said that he, that he had a friend named Kyle Black. And I'm like, I know, right? And he's like, no, I have another one. And so, and he sent me a, a screenshot of his, pit, of, of his contacts, and there's Kyle Black number one, which is me, thankfully, that he didn't displace me. And then there's Kyle Black number two, and it's like, well, wait a second. And it, it, it's crazy because how is it that someone knows a Kyle Black number two? And apparently, 
I thought I was pretty unique, but there's a bunch of Kyle Blacks. There were actually, in fact, even leaving my friend that has Kyle Black 1 and Kyle Black 2, there was another Kyle Black that lived in Copper's Cove that coached at the high school that I was always confused with when I was coaching in Lampasas. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And that's exactly what we could get caught up into when we're looking at, yes, Jesus' name means this. So did the other person that was named Jesus. And so we have to allow ourselves not to just stop at one aspect of his name, but look further at what's said about him. Because if the angel stopped and you shall call his name Jesus, there's nothing unique about him other than his name was given to him by the angel and told Joseph. But what is the next part of this verse? For he will save his people from their sins. So not only is he Jesus, God is salvation, but he's Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And so when we look at Jesus, for he save his people from the sins, then we understand what's in the power of his name. Because he's not just Jesus, God was salvation, meaning that, no, he's Jesus, God is salvation, who is the anointed one, who is the Messiah, who will save his people from their sin. It's only through him that we experience the love that we all desperately cling, because only Christ is uniquely born to save us, to offer redemption through his life, because he is Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. It's his birth that we look back to. That's why he then comes in again in John 14 and says, I'm the only way. Just only through me, because only Jesus Christ, the anointed one, born of the Virgin Mary on this day that we celebrate in this season is uniquely qualified to redeem us. And his life is a display of God's love and the love of our Redeemer. That his position, his title is to save their people, his people from their sin. And that's what we understand that, that his position does. That's what he does, is that he saves us from our sin first. You see, that it's our sin. And, and into last week, we see Genesis 3. We see sin entered, and then the curse happened. We dealt with the hope of redemption last week because of sin. You get to Romans 3, 23, all have sinned. And so Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, saves us from our sin. It's our sin. It's already in us from birth. He saves us from our sin, but he also then saves us to life with himself. So it's not just save us from our sin and then we just go. No, he saves us from our sin, but he saves us to himself to bring glory to him as we obey him and submit to his lordship in our life. And so when we look at the position or the title of our redeemer, we see that Jesus Christ, that we celebrate the birth of, was uniquely born for this job. That only Christ could display the love of our Redeemer because of the position that he held uniquely because of his birth and the circumstances that surround it and who he was. But we can take it a step further. Not only is his display, the love displayed in his position, but it's the proximity. Right? If you keep reading, not only do we experience and see the love of our Redeemer in his position, but we feel it by his proximity. If you keep reading, verse 22 says, And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And when we look at God with us, when we look at Emmanuel, we realize that, that not only is love displayed by the position that Christ offered, but it's the proximity that he's with us, that God brings comfort because he is near, that he came to us, that we're not alone or abandoned by a God who created and then just stepped aside, but it's a God who actually came to us, that God is with us, that he's with us first because of his birth. Like clearly that he's here, he was born, and so he's with us, that his birth shows us that God is not absent, that God had created the world and did not leave. In fact, he entered into his creation to redeem the people who had messed it up, that our God came to us. It, it reminds me of the Old Testament when Elijah and the prophets of Baal are there. He's like, what did your, is, your, is your God asleep or is he not there? And, and he was thinking faithfully that God is with me, I know that, but we don't have to faithfully think that he's with us or understand by faith alone because we can see that God is with us because we see his son born to us. He is near us, he is with us because he was born and entered this world to be with us. But not only is he with us through his birth, but he's with us because of his spirit. That he is God not only with us, but he is God within us. Because when he ascended, what did he reassure the disciples? Like, why are you leaving now? Right? They, they were all excited because Christ had returned, everything fulfilled. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. And they freaked out again. And he said, no, it's better that I leave because I'll send another. And so not only is it because of his birth that he's with us, but it's because his spirit, not only is he God with us, he's God within us. That when we submit our lives to Christ... We are united with him, and his spirit is within us. He does not abandon us. He doesn't leave us just to try to be good people and live as he called us to, even though we're incapable. No, his spirit is within us, and we know that he is good because he still loves us. And we see understanding, and we see this proximity, and we see how good Christ actually is because he knows us, yet he loves us. And, and think about that, that he knows you better than anything else, better than anyone else can know you, yet he still loves you. Because if we're honest, most of us try to hide who we are if we want people to love us, right? If we're looking at Christ and, and, and talking about how he loves us, most of us, we, we try to put our best foot forward when we're trying to think about when you were dating um, especially if you're married, think about when you're dating your spouse, right? Everything, you did everything right, didn't you? And I think about this, um, when we talk about, I wasn't weird or awkward because I wanted her to actually love me, right? I, wanted, I needed her to see the, the responsible Kyle, not the normal Kyle, and, and hopefully it worked, right? And so that's what we do, though. When, we're, when we want to someone to love us, we put our best foot forward. We try to achieve something necessarily faking who we are, but we hold back the parts that we think might push someone away. And, and, and if we think about it, that's exactly what we would try to do with Christ. That's exactly what we do, but we have to understand that he's with us, he's within us, he knows us, yet he loves us. We didn't have to put our best foot forward because we couldn't, yet he still loved us, and we see that because of the proximity that he had, that he was born to us to accomplish what we couldn't accomplish, that he displays the love of God through the redemption by his sacrifice 
even though we didn't deserve it, he accomplished what we couldn't. That he stepped into our world, he lived the life that we were supposed to live that couldn't, and he did it perfectly. The proximity of Christ, the proximity of our Redeemer, shows us that he loves us because he knew who we are from the foundation of the world, yet he still chose to come. And then when we look at his life and we move forward, realize that that love is on display because of his perfect performance. When we look at the life of Christ, we realize that he did what we are incapable of doing, but he did it for us. So you get in Hebrews 4, it says that he's been tested in every way, yet without sin. So when we look at Christ, and as we look into this understanding of Christ being born without sin, a lot of times we think, well, he was fully God, and that's okay, because surely as God he couldn't sin, right? Because God can't be any part of that. But we forget to mention, and we forget to realize that he was fully human, and he was tested and tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. That his perfect performance then is recorded as our perfect performance when we submit our lives to him. When we look upon the perfect life of Christ, that's when we see his love for us. That's when we see love displayed. Because that life, that perfect life, that perfect performance was born for us. It was lived for us. It's applied to us even when we don't deserve it. That God's love is on display in Christ when we look at Jesus And we see that he was exactly like us, which means he was the appropriate sacrifice, yet he was completely different from us because he was without sin. So we need to look at both aspects of that as we consider his his perfect performance and how that really affects our lives. First, we have to see that he was like us, that if he wasn't like us in every way, then he's not the appropriate sacrifice. We're still outside of God because we are sinners. But that's where you go back to, to Hebrews 2. It's Hebrews 2.17 if you want to write it down and look at it. You don't have to turn there. But it says that what? He was like us in every respect, in every way. There was everything about him was like us. He was fully human. He experienced everything that you and I experience. Every emotion that we have, Christ experienced. Every temptation that we have, Christ experienced. And that's not where we jump into this thing and say, well, we have technology and it's different. It's the same temptations. It's a different mode of temptation that we face. That the temptations that Christ faced are the same as he experienced the same joys, the same sorrow, the same abandonment. Yet without sin, every aspect, he loved us. And that's why it's so welcoming when we look at the character of Christ on display because we see someone who is like us. We see someone who is able to do what we are unable to do. That so often we see how God has called us to live and then we try to live that and we fail. And so in Christ we understand that he's like us, yet he did what we couldn't do. And by submitting our lives to him, then we understand that we gain that as well. Not because we deserved it, because he freely offered it. So he's like us in every way, yet he's different than us. He's different because he's like us in every way. He had every temptation, yet without sin. But he's also different than us because he loves unconditionally, or he loves not based on how someone else 
is presented. And, and, and think about that. How many of you know someone else besides Jesus? Don't give me the Jesus answer. But how many of you know someone else that is perfectly loving even, they, even when they know every flaw and aspect of someone else? It's not possible. Because there's part of us, this sin that's still present, wanting to come out and enslave us again. There's this part of us that says, I love you, but I understand this, so I'm going to hold it back a little bit. That I'm going to make you perform a little bit to gain my love. I'm going to try to, to round off the edges before I will completely give myself over to you. And Christ says, I understand who you are. I understand the filth that even your good deeds are, yet I love you. Because none of us love that way. None of us know anyone else that loves that way. Yet we have Christ and his perfect performance for us as living our lives. And Christ knows you and he still loves you. He knows you even though he did what you couldn't do. There's no arrogance in Christ looking back saying, if you'd have worked a little harder, maybe you could have accomplished this. No, he has his perfect record. He has a sinless life here, yet he still loves you despite your failures and your flaws, despite the secret things that no one else knows, that he knows, and he still loves you. Because Christ is a visualization of the love of God and our Redeemer. So when we look at his birth, we see love personified in our Redeemer through his perfect performance. But what happens then, and a way to kind of bring this into how that then displays in our lives, is we look at those two words that we've been using, the perfect performance, because that's exactly what we try to do. It's exactly what we try to do, and I'm kind of borrowing this from another pastor called Bob Thune. He's got a whole gospel grid that explains all of this, which I can explain to you later. But, but I just want us to look at these understandings because it'll show us then how we can actually rest in Christ through his perfect performance alone and the proximity that he has with us and the position as our Redeemer and actually feel satisfied and comforted. Because what we all struggle with is that we try to then perform. Right? We see that Christ was perfect, but what we do then is we try to perform ourselves. And I think this is a result of a society that says, just work a little harder and you can achieve anything. And you, and you see that even though there, there's people that make fun of that and say, oh, well, then I'm going to be a professional athlete and all that. But, but what we do is we try to do that even in the little things. We, we don't even have to speak hyperbole to understand this, that we work to achieve something. If you work a little bit harder, we're ingrained we see that from birth, that if you just try harder, then it's going to be okay. That if you just study more, you're going to get an A. That's not always true. I have a transcript that proves it. Right? That I didn't matter how much studying. Now remember, we, Lindsay and I took a class together, and that was a bad idea on my part. Right? And, and it was so frustrating because we would study together and study, and I would know the material enough to where I could tell her, and then what happened? She made a higher grade. I'm like, where's the justice in that, right? I knew, and it didn't matter how much more I studied, I didn't make a higher grade. It didn't mean that I had completely failed, but there was this level to where I couldn't achieve. Yet we tell students, we tell people, just work a little harder. But what that does is it ingrains this performance, and then we naturally take that performance when we look at who we are as we stand before God, and we think, if I can just do a little bit harder, then I'm okay. But what that does is it ends in legalism. It ends in this idea that we have to be a certain way. And what happens then 
is we, re- we forget the fact that we can't merit anything of God's love apart from what is on display in Christ, that we didn't gain anything. And in, in, and in a sad twist of fate, those who get stuck in a legalistic understanding, this performance understanding, actually find themselves further from salvation than someone who just is completely living contrary to what God has called them. Because when you get stuck in this performance mindset, you think that you have to do something, and then when you're doing it, you feel like you're right. You feel like you've achieved it. You feel like, I'm there, and in fact, you're so far away. But the signs, the outward display, would lead you to think and lead others to tell you you're doing great. But all the while, we're stuck in this performance, not realizing that the one performance in this life that matters is Christ Because he was the one that was able to perfectly perform. That our best performance still falls short of the mark that's intended and given by a holy, righteous God. But if we don't get stuck in this performance understanding and we say, okay, well then Christ performed. I can go with that. I don't have to do that. The other thing that we got caught in is that we start then pretending that we're actually perfect. That we don't perform it. We've already achieved it. That we're not as bad. That we don't need as much salvation. And this is a result of society telling us that people are basically good. That it leaves out the understanding, understanding that we are sinful from birth. But, but if we pretend that we're somewhat closer to perfection than we are, then that leaves us with a false sense of understanding of who we are. And so when we believe that about others we loosen the discipline that we expect them to achieve, that we feel sorry for them. Well, people are basically good. They just don't know how to do it right. And so we loosen the discipleship. We loosen the, the, the standards on them, and all that does is hurt them. It gives them this false sense of security, thinking, well, I'm actually not that bad. I'm pretty good, but we're not. And so if we're telling people, if we're teaching people, especially young people, that that we're somewhat basically good, we're actually starting them off in a worse place than telling them that we're a sinner from birth. That doesn't mean that you condemn them, but we can be honest about who we are because in Christ, we see the love of our Redeemer display. We see the perfection that we desperately want to think we have, and we have it through submission to Him. And so when we think of other people like that, we think of other people are basically good, we loosen discipline, and we, we believe that we ourselves are basically good, we get lazy. Then all of a sudden it's, why do I have to actually study? Why do I have to seek the Lord? Why do I have, because I've already got this, I'm already there. And what happens then, and, or another way to say this, is we think that we get to this point where we can retire from the Christian life. That somehow we've achieved this standard. I've put in my time. I don't have to do it any longer because I'm, I've actually got this. I'm actually a little better than some other people. I've put in my time. Now I can just kind of coast into the twilight of my Christian life and I'll be all right. And really that's just a pretending that you're still able to achieve something that you aren't. Both performance and pretending, both that understanding and acknowledging that we can somehow do what Christ did leads to a corrupt heart or heart with deformities because then we see the world differently. We see ourselves differently. We see what he's called us to live differently and we forget that we need to run to him continually. That we look at ourselves instead of looking at Jesus' perfect performance. We see ourselves instead of looking at Christ born for us, the visualization of love, 
of God. And so as we look at Christ and the way to avoid both of those misunderstandings and look to Christ's perfect performance alone, to look at his proximity in us, to look at his position alone as redeemer, then we have to simply allow ourselves to look at Christ. And there's not a better season than the Christmas season to look at Christ. And so what we have to do is we have to allow our hearts to peer all the way back into the manger, that we look all the way back into this birth that we would think is crazy because of the conditions, but look all the way back, and we have to say when we see Christ, Jesus, my Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he is who he said he was, that he is the anointed one. He is chosen by God. He is God in salvation. And then we look at the manger. Not only do we say Christ the Lord, but we see the fact that he is Emmanuel, God with us. We see this child born realizing that that is God stepping into our world for us to achieve what we could not achieve, to provide what we could not provide. And so when we not only say, Jesus Christ, my Lord, as we look at his birth, we not only see the fact that it is God with us, but then we surrender our lives and say, Christ, you're all I need. That you alone can accomplish what I have. All I want, all I need is you. And when we actually allow ourselves to peer back into the manger and see this child born, then and only then will we see the love of our Redeemer on display. And only when we look at Christ and truly take away all the consumeristic lenses that we look upon this season, if we just look and say, it's Christ alone, it's his position as Redeemer, it's his proximity coming to us, and that it's his performance that we have, we will see the love of our Redeemer on display in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born that day so long ago, so that we might have reconciliation to a holy, righteous God through his perfect performance. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I gotta thank you that in a world that tells us to strive harder, we simply need to submit to your son. And I thank you that, that he alone is uniquely qualified for the position of Redeemer, that his title says everything, that he was the anointed one, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, who would save his people from our sins. And we thank you that, that you chose to send your son, that he would come to us, that, that you haven't created us and left us alone, God, that you entered into our world as us to perform and to live under your standards as we couldn't so that we might be reconciled to you. God, it's because of all of those things, because of when we see Christ and the love on display, God, we just pray and I pray that even now our hearts are just captivated by him alone. And it's in his name we pray, amen.